Well, God bless you. God bless you, my beloved. This is Minister S.M. Crockett, Jesus Christ, our Lord, Christian Fellowship. Coming to you with our weekly program this Friday, the 10th of January, 2020. Our weekly program is the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And I'm going to come to you tonight and for the next few uh, lessons, we, 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 we preach, we teach every Friday and Sunday, Friday evening and Sunday morning. And we're going to talk tonight about uh, a very, 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 very serious subject. Of course, they are, they're all serious, but this one is one that the Lord has really laid on my heart. <clears throat> I want to talk to you tonight from the subject, The Gospel According to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden, the Gospel, excuse me, The Gospel According to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Gospel According to the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but his be done. And the reason I say this subject is so serious because this subject involves the struggle that we have, even as Christians, to conform our will to the will of God. Let me say that again. There is a struggle to conform our will, even as Christians. There's a struggle to conform our will to the will of God. And so the name of the message is the gospel according to the garden of Gethsemane. The reason uh, it has that name is because the Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus, our Lord, uh, faced probably his greatest struggle to conform to the perfect will of God. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 26. Let us pray. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we bless you, we thank you, and we glorify you, we praise you. We thank you for the privilege of mentioning your name, the name of your dear son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to whom be glory, power, majesty, and dominion, both now and forever. We ask that you open the eyes of our understanding that we may understand the seriousness of this matter of conforming our will to your will, Lord, so that we can be more like you and less like ourselves. Help us, Lord, to say no to sin, yes to righteousness, which is in your dear Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to whom be glory, power, majesty, and dominion, both now and forever. I pray that as a result of this teaching and teaching all over the world, teaching and preaching all over the world, I pray that gifts and fruit of the Holy Spirit would be the result. Blessed be your name forever. You are the only true and living God. There are all of the gods are idols the works of men's wicked hands and imaginations. You, O Lord, you are the only true and living God, and we bless you and we praise you and we thank you for all things through your dear Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Please, Lord, fill us with the Holy Spirit, forgive us for our sins. Wash us in the blood of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to whom be glory, power, kingdom, majesty, and dominion, both now and forever. Amen. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 23, and I'll, there are a few more scripture verses, passages that I'll mention. 
in the in the in the little while that I'm with you. And then we'll continue this on Sunday morning. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 36. Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 36. This is our Lord Jesus. Right before he's arrested, right before he's crucified for our sins. Remember, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of the price that had to be paid for our peace was the chastisement, chastisement that was put upon him. And by his stripes we are saved from the ravages of sin. So let's go to Matthew 26, uh, beginning at verse 36. Then, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. Then Jesus came with them, his disciples, 11 of them, not Judas. Judas had already gone out and, and betrayed Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That was the price um, that you had to pay if you accidentally killed somebody's slave. Let me say that again. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That was the price according to the Old Testament law. That was the price you had to pay, you had to give in restitution if you uh, accidentally killed somebody's slave. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was betrayed for the price of a dead slave. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John. The same individuals, he, three individuals he took with him to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. The same three individuals he took with him when he performed one of his healings. He took Peter, James, and John. He didn't always take all the apostles with him everywhere he went. Now, for his own reasons, they would become pillars of the New Testament church. He, he, would, he would take Peter, James, and John. And he took, he, took, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which would be James and John. They were brothers. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Jesus is perfectly God, but he's also perfectly man. And when the word became flesh, the Bible says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when Jesus became flesh, he took upon everything that a human being um, would, would have, would possess, with the exception of he did not have a sinful nature. He came, the Bible says, he came in the likeness of sin. He came in the likeness of a sinful individual like you or me. He came in the likeness of sin, but he, he was not born in sin. He was born by the supernatural power of God, the supernatural intervention of God in the life of Jesus' mother, Mary, the Virgin Mary. So he came, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. So he was 100% God and 100% man. And because he was 100% man, he experienced what men and women experience meaning he had a will, he had uh, the, the power to think, he had all the, all the faculties of a human being without the stain of sin. There was no stain of sin in his life, 
because had there been the stain of sin in his life, he wouldn't have been able to be our savior. Whoever was going to redeem us from our sins had to be spotless. That's why Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here we see him in his humiliation, what theologians call the kenosis, the voluntary humiliation of Jesus, where the word, the logos of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and John says in John 1.14, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we beheld his glory, but that glory was not only the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration or the, glory of, or the glory of his resurrection or the glory of his ascension back to the right hand of the Father, but that glory was also the very life that he lived, the very ministry that he completed. If you look in John 2 and 11, when Jesus changed the water to wine, uh, the Bible says in John 2, 11, this was the first sign that Jesus did and it, he manifested his glory. So just by John 2.11, uh, John 2.11 shows us that Jesus was manifesting his glory while on earth, walking in the likeness of sinful flesh. And again, what theologians call the kenosis. The kenosis is, Jesus, is God um, becoming flesh in the person of Jesus. The kenosis is the word of God, the eternal word of God, becoming flesh, embedding it himself in, in Mary's um, in a welcome womb. Uh, the word becomes flesh and dwelt among, and became flesh and dwelt among us, John said, of course, 2,000 years ago. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I would even go so far to say when he died on the cross, that was also part of his glory because it shows him in his utter humiliation, in his utter determination, in his 100% conformity to the will of God. For him to go to the cross, the brutal cross, for him to subject himself to the brutality of the Romans, that is part of the, that he's glorifying God. And, and uh, uh, this is part of the whole thing of his glory. So his glory was not just his resurrection and his him at the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, uh, etc. In other words, his glory was also in his humiliation, uh, in the miracles that he did, uh, several miracles that he did. Um, no one had ever done. One of them was to um, open the eyes of the blind. No Old Testament prophet, no Old Testament miracle-working prophet, such as. Um, Elijah and Elisha, or Moses when he was leading the children out of the land of Israel. None of these Old Testament prophets and leaders uh, had opened the eyes of the blind. Then there are three other miracles that he did that no one else had ever done. There, there's this um, book that I'm reading now by a Jewish, by a Messianic Jew. Messianic Jews are Jews who believe in Jesus. And he says there are four miracles that Jesus worked that no one had ever worked before. I know one of them is opening the eyes of the blind. The other three I'm going to read and I'll let you know what they are. The other, I'm going to guess that one of the other ones is um, Jesus walking on water. Uh, I'm going to guess. I'm, I'm guessing, but I'll come back to you. And then I'm going to guess that another one would have been when he uh, uh, stilled the storm. 
And then the fourth one, I don't know, I, I, but I'll, I'm going to read about it because this Messianic Jew named um, Etan Bar, I think his name is. And, and while I'm saying that, if you really want to read and find out about the life of Jesus, it's good to read commentaries by Messianic Jews because they have the Old Testament background knowledge and then they get saved and they take that Old Testament background knowledge and combine it with the revelation of Jesus Christ, similar to what happened with Paul. When the Lord saved Paul, he saved one who had been an Old Testament scholar who had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the great Hebrew uh, teacher. And then when Paul got saved, he took that knowledge and synthesized it through the Holy Spirit, of course, with, uh, with the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it's good uh, to read commentaries by, by top Gentile uh, scholars who believe in the word of God and believe in Jesus. But it's, it's even better, in my opinion, to read commentaries written by Messianic Jews like Arnold Fruchtenbaum and David Levy and Etan Barr and um, um, Adolf Sapir, Sapir, I think it's, I think it's Adolf Sapir. So here we see Jesus in the garden. He says, sit here while I go and pray over there. And while he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. So we see Jesus in his, humili in his humiliation, in his humanity. So he was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. The Bible says he became flesh that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in those things that pertain to God that he might be able to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Jesus, the word became flesh so that he might identify with who we are. I was saying a few weeks ago, and I'll say it again, you can identify with people who've struggled in areas that you've struggled in. When I was a child, I, 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 I had a terrible stutter. I stuttered terrible. I, I still do stutter, but not nearly as badly as when I was a child. I stuttered terribly. When I was a child, especially certain words that began with certain letters like R, L. And there was one more letter I can't remember, but I know R and L. And I had to I had to be in a school play and I was terrified about standing before the audience. I got through it by the grace of God, but I, I stuttered as a child. So I can identify with people who who may have a speech impediment. When I was in the eighth grade, I had a, a, a fractured skull. I was playing with another young man. We were playing karate sticks. You know, trying to be Bruce Lee and all that. And he caught me across my head with the nunchucks, fractured my skull, and I missed my eighth grade, the end of eighth grade. They passed me on the ninth grade because I was passing, etc. But I can identify with people who've suffered traumatic head injury. All right, now that I'm 62, I can identify with what a 55, 60, 70 year old man has to deal with as far as health issues, prostate issues. And things like that. When I was 22, I couldn't identify with it. If, if when I was 20, if you told me about the prostate issues of a 65-year-old man, I would have, I would have, I would have, it would have gone in one ear and out the other, because I couldn't identify with it. But now that I'm 62, and I sometimes have to get up, you know, two or three times at night to in order to urinate because of the enlarged prostate that men my age have, I can identify with it. Well, Jesus. The word of God became flesh so that God might more perfectly identify with us. The Bible says that he might identify with our, our weaknesses, our sorrows. 
The Bible says, because he's our merciful and faithful high priest, which is the office that Jesus occupies right now, the Bible says we can come boldly before his throne, which is a throne not of condemnation, but it's a throne of grace. And we can receive mercy and help in the time of need because the Bible says Jesus, was he suffered being tempted, but yet he was without sin. I'm not going to get into the argument as to whether he could have sinned and all that. I'm not going to get into that tonight. I will tell you I don't believe he could have sinned because his 100% man was 100% deity as well as 100% God. But I don't want to get into that, that argument tonight because that'll take us off into a, another area that I'm not ready to uh, discuss. Here I want to talk about conforming our will because even though we're born again, those of us who believe in Jesus, we still have a will. And that will, we have to make a decision to conform that will to the will of God. It's not automatic. It's not automatic. How do I know it's not automatic? Because I have not always conformed my will to the will of God since I've been a Christian. You haven't always conformed your will to the will of God since you've been a Christian. So, so the reason I'm talking about here, about the Garden of Gethsemane, is because it is the ultimate tribute to the humiliation and the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. So he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. He's speaking to his disciples here, James, John, and Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face. Jesus prayed saying, oh, my father, Oh, my father, he's, he's reaching that hour when he's about to go to the cross. Here we see Jesus in his humanity. Here we see Jesus as a man who's about to face the most brutal form of execution known to man at that time, especially the Roman crucifixion. The, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. Crucifixion was invented by the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians. But the Romans put their own special twist to it, their own barbarity to it. Uh, one preacher, I heard a preacher say years ago, the cross invented by the, Ro invented by the per uh, Persians, but perfected by the Romans. They put their own special twist to it. It was a very barbaric, uh, hideous, brutal form of execution even to the point that the Romans didn't put their own citizens on the cross. They didn't put their own citizens on the cross. That's how barbaric and cruel it was. They put other citizens, in this case, Jesus, a Jew, on the cross. So he says, my father, if it is possible, glory to the Lamb of God, I cannot imagine what this man was going through at this time. We cannot imagine. But what we see here is a man who is going to make the ultimate decision to conform his will to the will of the Father. But he says, Father, if, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Glory to the Lamb. I can't be... I, we. We can read about it and preach about it and teach about it and shout about it and weep about it, but there's no way we can completely understand what Jesus 
was dealing with at this time. He says, Father. And he knows the Father hears his prayers. He knows that. That's not even an issue. But he says, Father, because Judas and the, his, his betrayer and the Romans, the Judas and the, uh, and the Jews and his betrayer and, and his, those who would arrest him, they're, they're, they're just a few steps away. Father, if it's possible, glory to the Lamb of God. Let this cup, what cup? Is he talking about a literal, a literal cup? Lord, this cup, no. He's saying a cup that's filled with the sorrows of crucifixion, of degradation, of humiliation. The Bible says in Hebrews, he despised the cross. He despised the shame. Glory to the Lamb of God. Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But he doesn't linger there. We would have we would have lingered there. I would have lingered there. I would have said, no, no, no. I'm not dying for these disciples who are getting on my nerves. And they they just they just don't seem to be getting it. They're they're fighting over who's gonna be the big biggest preacher and with the biggest church and I'm not dying over these these Jews. I'm not dying over these Jews who who they they rejected me. They rather have. Uh, they said, "Give us Barabbas, a murderer." I'm not dying for him. I would have said that. You probably would have said that. He says, "Nevertheless, not as I will. Not as I will." but as you will. And I looked up the word uh, um, will in the Greek. It just means God as pleasure. Lord, not my pleasure, not my desire. It also means desire. Not my pleasure, not my desire, but Father, your pleasure, your desire. Let me read it to you again. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. This is the Matthew version. It's in all four gospels. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. See, Jesus had a soul. And the Greek word for soul is psyche. My soul, my mind, my inner man. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. He says, even to death. And it's very significant that he said, even to death. Because when I read to you in Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says that Jesus, knowing that he was God, did not grasp uh, an opportunity to use that fact to his advantage. But the Bible says he made him, he became in the form of a servant, a doulos, a slave. And he was made in the likeness of men, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And being found in fashion as a man, the Bible says he humbled himself. That's very difficult for us to do, to humble ourselves. The Bible says under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us in due season. He humbled himself, watch this. 
in the Philippians passage, he humbled himself and became obedient, listen to this, unto death, listen to this, even the death of the cross. See, we don't understand the cross because we're 2,000 years removed from it. And so many different uh, religions and even branches of Christianity uh, have gotten a hold of what the cross really was. And now when we see Jesus, he's on the cross with a little trickle of blood coming down his forehead. We don't see the brutality of it. The Romans, let, let me just step back for a second and I'm not going to get off into the weeds here. About 600 or so years before Jesus walked the earth, the prophet Daniel had a vision of four kingdoms. Actually, it was Nebuchadnezzar who had the, the, the dream. It was Daniel who interpreted the dream by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there were four kingdoms, four great kingdoms. And the last of those four great kingdoms, many of us believe, was the Roman Empire in both its ancient form and a form yet to be revealed during the days of the Antichrist and all that. But, but, but the four animals that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about and Daniel had the vision also in chapter 7. Same vision, but in a, set in a different context. There were four beasts, but the most dreadful of the four beasts, the most devourous, if that's a word, of the four beasts was the fourth beast, which represents, we believe, many of us believe, the Roman Empire. So when Jesus came and walked the earth, in the, the Bible says in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem uh, us who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. He came during the time, not of the Medes and the Persians, not of the Babylonians, not of the Greeks, but he came during the fourth kingdom, the Romans. The Romans were very sophisticated in many ways. We even use many of their ways today as far as architecture and our, our politics that we have now with the Senate and the House of Representatives and all that is based upon the Romans. The Romans had a Senate. So much of what we do today, even, even many of the languages we speak today come from Latin, Spanish and English, uh, Spanish, not English, Spanish and Portuguese and French and Italian and Romanian, they come from Latin. So the Roman influence is, is still being felt today. So the Romans were very sophisticated in many ways, but they were also very brutal. They were very barbaric. They were idol worshippers, of course. They worshipped um, thousands of gods. They worshipped their, their, their Caesars. They didn't know what the truth was as far as God is concerned. Remember when Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? He didn't know what truth was. So the Romans were very barbaric. So Jesus says here, he says, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Uh, I know, when, I know when, right before he raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, he said, the Bible says he groaned within his spirit. And you remember at one point it says Jesus wept. So we're, talking, we're not talking about a robot here, an automaton here. We're talking about a man, a man who was fully man as well as fully God without the stain of sin. He didn't have the stain of sin in his life like you and I were born with. Because if he had had the stain of sin, he wouldn't have been able to be our perfect savior. For our savior could not be an animal, for man is made in the image of God. Man is above the animals. Our savior had to be a man. 
but it had to be a man without a spot or a blemish, the Bible says, or any such thing. So he took Peter, James, and John. He said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. He says, even to death. He knows that he's about to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? He says, stay here and watch with me. Now, he knows they're human. They're going to fall asleep. And he knows all of this. But he says, stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, with whom I've, I've been since before the foundation of the world, right? Right? In, in, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning. With, and in the beginning is really a reference for us as humans. Because technically there, there is no beginning. That's a reference for us. That's not a reference for him. For, for the divine. That's a reference for our finite mind. In the beginning. There, there, there was no beginning. Because God has no beginning. So he says... My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me, he says to them. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup, let this cup of suffering, let this cup of humiliation, let this cup of degradation of shame let it pass from me but he doesn't linger there he says nevertheless not as I will but as you will or the King James would say but thine thine will be done not my will but thine be done this is the new King James then he came to the disciples and they were asleep <laughs> The church was asleep. That a preach, right? And he said to Peter, what could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. He said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then he goes a second time. It's kind of like what Paul did, but I won't get into what Paul did because I want to focus on Jesus right here, right now. I'll get into what Paul did either later on today or on Sunday or another time. So he prayed a second time. Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again. <laughs> a sleeping church. When, when the church, as the church slept, right? it sounded like a soap opera, as the church slept, right? And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, he prayed the third time. Saying the same words, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Then he came to the disciples, to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man, talking about himself, is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. So he's, he's good now. He's like, I'm good now. He, he got, I'm good now. I've been with the Father. Um, 
in one of the gospels, I don't know if it's Mark or Luke or John, it said, it said angels came and ministered unto him. It said great drops like of sweat like blood poured from him. So it must be in one of the other gospels. Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus in the hand of sin, in the hands of sinners. Glory to the Lamb of God. The Son of God, the Holy One, capital H, capital O, the Holy One. He who, who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He's talking about Judas. My betrayer is at hand. The, go the, the gospel, according to the Garden of Gethsemane, the gospel, according to the Garden of Gethsemane, the gospel, according to the Garden of Gethsemane, the gospel, according to the Garden of Gethsemane. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Hebrews, I'm reading from Hebrews, which is quoting the Psalms, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Listen to this part right here. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. The 40th Psalm says, let me read the 40th Psalm to you. The 40th Psalm says concerning our Lord Jesus. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Psalm 47, 47 and 8. I delight to do your will, O oh God. I delight to do your will, O oh God. So the struggle that we have as Christians See, here I'm not talking about unbelievers because unbelievers have not come into the new covenant yet. The new covenant is the covenant of grace, the covenant that's based on the blood of Jesus Christ. The unbeliever has not come into that covenant yet, so I'm not even talking about unbelievers. We know unbelievers are not conformed to the will of God because they're unbelievers. Here I'm preaching to the choir, to you and to me. We struggle to conform to God's will because we have a will that is still in rebellion in many cases, not all. In many cases, our will is in rebellion against God. But Jesus said, Father, if it's possible, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. 
because I come to do your will, God. Make me a body, and I will go and do your will. But here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that we see that titanic struggle. Between the Bible says, I told you in Hebrews, the Bible says this in Hebrews, I believe, chapter 12. It says, Jesus despised the shame of Calvary. He despised it. If you think Jesus loved Calvary, no. But, but the Bible says, but because of the joy that was set before him. You see, Jesus being God, he, he had the long view. Because of the joy that was set before him, the Bible says he endured the cross. Because of the joy that was set before him. And that joy includes your salvation and my salvation. But he despised the cross. It says it in Hebrews chapter 12. He despised it. He had to because of his holiness, his loveliness, and what he had to endure. Everything he endured was contrary to who he is. And so... I'm going to I'm going to go from the Matthew passage. I, you know what I want to do? I don't have some of my Bibles with me right now. And I don't want to get up and look for them. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the Mark passage cuz the one of the passage talks about the great drops of blood. The great drops of blood. And I don't it wasn't it, it wasn't the Matthew passage because it didn't mention it. So let me go to the Mark passage. And if it's not the Mark passage, It'll be the Luke passage, and if it's not the Luke passage, it'll be the John passage. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed. We have to get it through our head that Jesus was a man. He wasn't a, ro a robot, an automaton. He wasn't just a spirit. He was a man with feelings, a rational thinking individual. He had everything that you have as a man and that I have as a man and that you have as a woman, except he didn't have the stain of sin in his life. That's why he could be our savior. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in order, in order to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he had to be spotless. I'll go ahead and tell you this right now before I continue. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, that was the time when the lambs, when the priests, etc., they would examine the lambs to make sure the lambs were spotless. And they would examine the lambs for four days, about four days. And then after those four days, they would sacrifice. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, four days later, at twilight, according to the Old Testament, the lamb had to be slaughtered at twilight, which is like sunsetting. Four days later, at twilight, Jesus was crucified. The lamb of God without a spot or a blemish. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus was a man. He still is a man. Paul called him in 1 Timothy 2 and 5. He said there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus is still is, he still is a man. He's ascended to, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is a man. He, he's the God man. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in the majesty on high. 
But the Mark passage says, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Glory to God. He knows the Father like no one else. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father. And if you read that in the Greek, it says the only begotten um, no, in the English, it says the only begotten son who's in the bosom of the father. If you read it in the Greek, it says the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father. Glory to the Lamb of God. Hallelujah. So nobody knows the father like the son. He said it himself. Nobody knows the father like I do. You're not coming to the father unless you come through me. Glory to the Lamb of God. So he says, Father, all, all things are possible for you. I know you. you. You're my father. I've been with you since eternity. Micah 5 and 2 said from everlasting. Remove this cup from me. You hear in Mark it says, remove this cup. He's not telling the father what to do. He would never do that. But he says, he says here, remove this cup from me. Remove this, this, this shame that I'm about to endure. I'm about to be slapped around. I'm about to be uh, belittled. I'm about to be spit upon. They're about to pluck my beard. Isaiah said they plucked his beard out. Isaiah said he was beaten uh, to the point that he was barely recognizable. See, again, we have many men, for good or bad intention, many men in, in, in religion, including Christianity, both Protestant and Catholic, they've gotten a hold of the crucifixion. And the image we have of Jesus is this man who looks like he's on his way to Woodstock. On the cross with a little, like somebody hit him in the head with a rock. A little trickle of blood is coming down his forehead. That's not Calvary. That doesn't even begin to capture the brutality of Calvary. So he's, he's about to be... Um, um, beaten with a cat of nine tails, a whip that had that uh, had attached to it a thong, that had attached to the thongs a uh, metal and rock and bone. And when they would whip Jesus and they would pull the whip back, it would tear his flesh. And he knows the horrors that he's about to endure. He knows the horrors that he's about to endure. He knows the shame that he's about to endure. He knows he's about to be mocked by the Romans they're going to put a crown of thorn, una corona de espinas. And they're not going to put it on his head and say, you know, we hope that doesn't hurt. You know how you see police putting people in the car and they'll put their hand on their head to make sure they don't bump their head on the car and then be able to claim police brutality. They thrust the crown of long, spiny thorns into Jesus' lovely brow. And these, these thorns, if you've ever cut your hand like on a rose bush, these thorns are razor sharp. He knows he's about to be humiliated, spit upon, mocked. They take his clothes off of him and they put a robe on him and they say to him, the perfect prophet, the faithful and true witness, the spirit of prophecy, they say to him, prophesy to us if you're the Christ. 
He's about to be humiliated and mocked. It was bad enough he was rejected by the Jews. Now he's about to be humiliated and mocked and murdered by the Gentiles. Glory to the Lamb of God. And he knows all. He knows all this because he has this supernatural, divine foreknowledge. He knows it. He says, take this cup from me. Then he says, without hesitation, yet not what I will, but what you will. And, and my question today before I continue is, is that our mindset? Because the Bible says, Paul says to the Philippians, and by extension he's saying to us, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. How much is our will conformed to God's will? And you know I'm speaking to myself also. I'm not just speaking to you. How much is our will, because we have a will. See, sometimes we think, and people think that Christianity is automatic. Oh, you're a Christian and automatically these, you know, you're going to obey God. No, no you're not going to automatically obey God. The Bible says that sin easily besets us. We don't automatically obey God. It has to be a conscious decision of, for our will to conform to the will of God. It has to be a conscious decision based on knowledge, experience, revelation. But it has to be a conscious decision. I can go out tonight after I teach you. I can go out tonight and disobey God. Because if I make that decision, you can go out tonight after you listen to me. You can go out tonight and, and consciously, willfully, the Bible says, if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there's no more sacrifice for sins. For Jesus is the ultimate perfect sacrifice. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. When Adam and Eve sinned, Eve was deceived. The Bible says the devil deceived her. Adam sinned, but he sinned willfully. Adam wasn't deceived. Adam sinned willfully. And then the Bible talks in the law of Moses about unintentional sin. So basically, there are three ways you can sin. You can be deceived, as people are deceived by the devil, people who are in cults and things like that, people who listen to false prophets and stuff like that. You can be deceived into sinning. You can sin willfully. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. You can sin willfully. And you can sin unintentionally. Now, all three sins, God's grace is available, but I'm just showing you. Basically, there are three ways to sin. You can, sin, you can be deceived, like following a Jim Jones or a Charles Manson, uh, getting involved in Scientology or, or the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism. You can be deceived into sinning, following a false prophet. You can sin willfully. I know this is wrong. I know it's wrong to commit adultery. I know homosexuality is wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. I know adultery is wrong. I know lying is wrong. I know stealing money from my job is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. You can sin willfully. Or you can sin unintentionally. And then there are three types of sin. There are three ways to sin. There are three types of sin. The Bible says the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
This is the same Jesus whom the devil, about three years earlier, had come to tempt with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Jesus each time said, get, get behind me, Satan. It is written. He quoted Deuteronomy each time. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. De the word Deuteronomy means like to give it again. Deuteros, from the Greek word Deuteros. And he came and, and, the, and Satan said, because Jesus had just fasted for 40 days and nights. And he was hungry. And Satan said, now, if you're the son of God here now, command that these stones be made bread. Jesus said, it's written, as hungry as he was, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Glory to the Lamb of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God shall man live. You see that? And then the devil tempted him again. He took him to the pinnacle of a temple. It might have been Herod's temple. I'm not sure. And he said, uh, if you're the son of God, cast yourself down from here, for it is written. See, the devil, can, the, the devil can come preaching. Now, don't you think the devil can't come preaching? He can come preaching. It is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. But the devil eisegeted the passage. He didn't exegete it, meaning he didn't. He, he took the passage out of context. Now, how are you going to do that to the word of the living God? How are you going to try to tr tr um, how are you going to try to um, trick Jesus, who is the Word? The Word was made flesh, Hallelujah, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of full of grace and truth. How are you going to try and trick Jesus? That's like me trying to play basketball against Le LeBron James or or Anthony Davis, or you know, one of the great players of the NBA. How are you going to try to trick Jesus concerning God's word? If you read that 90th Psalm, Satan took, he just took, he eisegeted the passage. He just took a, he, he did what all cults do. Cult leaders, they'll take a passage of scripture and they'll take it out of context. That's what Satan did. And then the third temptation, Satan took Jesus to an exceedingly high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Now, whether all the kingdoms of the world at that time or all the kingdoms for all time, I don't know. And the glory of them. And Satan said, now, if you bow down to me, which is what Satan wanted, that's why Satan got drop kicked out of heaven because he said, according to um, Ezekiel uh, and Isaiah, Ezekiel what? Ezekiel 28, I believe, and Isaiah 14, Lucifer, when he was Lucifer, when he had been the exalted, the anointed sheriff that covered, Lucifer said, I will ascend to the very throne of God. I will be like the most high. See, that's why he was kicked out of heaven in the first place, because he tried to usurp authority over God. And he deceived a third of the angels. I don't know how, but he deceived a third of the angels to ride or die with him. So Jesus, he had already dealt with Satan back here in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the wilderness temptation. If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms, for they are mine to give. That to a certain extent, Satan was telling the truth, because Satan is the God of this world, lowercase g-o-d. He's the God of this world. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. So Satan was telling the truth about these kingdoms belong to me. Now, he was telling the truth about that. But the Bible says one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he was telling the truth. 
even a liar can put, you know, can mix in the truth with the lie. So Satan is a liar and the father of it, but, but he, was, he was telling the truth. These kingdoms are mine. He, Satan is the ruler of this world, the Bible says. He's the God of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. But each time Jesus perfectly conformed his will to God's will. Get behind me, Satan. It is written. Get behind me, Satan. It is written. You shall worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall you serve. And the Bible says Satan departed from, from Jesus for a season until he had a more convenient time, as he does with us. When we defeat Satan as he tempts us, he departs. But Satan has a round-trip ticket. He's coming back. He's not departing for good. He's coming back at a convenient season. Back to Mark. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found the disciples sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me, that will be Judas Iscariot. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So Jesus, knowing all things that would come upon him, he perfectly conformed his will to the will of God. And so the question remains, are we going to allow? I remember um, the only time I've been to New Orleans. Uh, I think it's the only time. Yes, the only, I've been to Louisiana several times, but this is the only time I've been to New Orleans. I remember uh, going to New Orleans a few years after Katrina. Katrina was 2005, so I went in 2006. I was going to see a former pastor of mine ordained as a bishop in the Full Gospel Baptist Fellowship, and we went by um, a van. I went with some of the other members of the church that I was a part of at that time. And I remember driving from Georgia to Louisiana. And I remember as we were going through Alabama, but especially Mississippi, and even into Louisiana, but especially Mississippi, I saw the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. But here's what I saw. This is the part I want to I want to uh, make to you. This is the point I want to make to you that conforms to what I'm talking about here. I saw many trees bent. They were bent. They they hadn't broken. Glory to the Lord. Oh, I feel the Holy Spirit upon me. I saw many trees bent in the direction of the hurricane. You know, hurricanes rotate in the northern hemisphere. Hurricane, hurricanes rotate counterclockwise. Counterclockwise. It's, it's a thing called the Coriolis effect, and I don't totally understand it. But hurricanes rotate. If you, if you ever see a hurricane rotating on the Weather Channel or whatever, hurricanes rotate counterclockwise. And these trees were bent in the direction 
of the hurricane in its counterclockwise rotation. Preacher, what point are you making? That's the way we're supposed to be. We're supposed to bend. Even break if it's the will of God. We're supposed to bend, bend in the direction of the Holy Spirit as we conform to God's will. Because although we're saved, those of us who've trusted in Jesus, yeah, you, we're saved. You're saved. I'm saved. But we have to ask, have we conformed? Are we conforming to God's will? Because sanctification is both immediate, but it's also progressive. Being set apart for God's holy, useful purpose. It's immediate, but it's also progressive. And conforming to God's will is part of that ongoing sanctification process. The scripture says in Hebrews, both he who sanctifies, that would be the Lord, and they who are being sanctified, that would be us, are all one. We're all one body in Christ. Christ is the head, we are the body. He who sanctifies, Jesus is the sanctifier. He who sanctifies, and those who are being sanctified, are all one. For which cause he's not ashamed to call us brethren. So if a person is not willing to undergo the sanctification process, I mean not willing, just I'm not going to do it. Is, can that person legitimately say that, that he or she is in the body of Christ? Both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, it's in Hebrew, it's in the epistle to the Hebrews. Both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, because only the Holy Spirit can sanctify us. I'm not talking about outward sanctification, you know, the outward things that we do to act like we're sanctified. You know, oh, look at her. She looks so sanctified. I'm not talking about that because that same person might cuss you out in the church parking lot if you take their, her or his parking space. I ain't talking about that. I'm not talking about that. And Jesus went to the synagogue during his ministry one time. People were in the synagogue reading the law of Moses and the prophets. He stood up and said, this prophecy right here in Isaiah 61 the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted and all that, and release the captives from bondage. He said, that scripture is talking about me. Those same people who were sitting in that synagogue, they tried to kill him. They tried to lead him to the brow of the, of the, the, the city was set on a hill. They tried to toss him off the, off the cliff. They had, just been, they had just been in church, so to speak, reading the Moses and the prophets. And Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He, he, the minister gave him the book. He opened it to Isaiah. Of course, at that time, it was a scroll, and it wouldn't have had chapters and verses. And Jesus found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to, to deliver the captives from bondage, to give sight to the blind, to set the captives free. He, then Jesus closed the book and gave it back to the minister. Then he said something else about how God performed certain healings under Elijah and Elisha. And these healings were performed for Gentiles and not Jews. And when he said that, you'd have thought there's going to be a riot in the synagogue. And Jesus said, uh, you shall surely say, physician, heal yourself. And he said, he said the part about the Isaiah part, about the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He said, I'm the man. 
I'm the fulfillment of that prophecy. And oh, Lord Jesus. You would have thought it was a black man at a Ku Klux Klan meeting. Lord, they tried to kill Jesus. 